From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In the past few days, both U.S. senators from Georgia have announced legislation aimed at curbing mass violence. Outgoing Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson is splitting with some members of his party. His bill would give the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention ongoing funding to research mass shootings. That is despite a provision to stop such funding passed by Congress in the 90s under the strong influence of the NRA. Meanwhile, Senator David Perdue is teaming up with his Democratic colleague Doug Jones of Alabama on a bill called the School Safety Clearinghouse Act, which would fund a federal information hub. Well, here to unravel these plans is Chris Vargas, director of a GSU Center for Research on School Safety, School Climate, and Classroom Management. And welcome to you, Chris. Good morning. Michael Dorn is on the line from our Macon Bureau. He's executive director of Safe Havens International. That's a nonprofit school security consulting organization. Michael, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, Chris, going to start with you. Senator Isaacson's plan is called the Expanding Research on Mass Violence Prevention Act. As we mentioned, it lets the CDC research gun violence. Now, why is that so surprising, especially from a Republican member of Congress? Well, I think it's actually a wonderful surprise for us um, to have somebody who's advocating for research funding um, to back the CDC, who's been wanting to do this research now, as you mentioned, since the 1990s. So this, for me, has been a wonderful opportunity for us to really start investigating and following and tracking and really looking at the psychological aspects of these individuals. So this, to me, is a wonderful thing to be coming from um, Johnny Isaacson. He is bucking his party on some level, and he's, he's retiring at the end of this year, so maybe yeah. not worried about re-election. But fellow Republican senators like David Perdue may be less likely to irritate the NRA and other pro-gun rights constituents. But say this bill does pass. What kind of research would you like to see come out of the CDC? For me, one, I think the fact that they're even talking about being able to research this in this time is wonderful. And so for us to look at the mass um, violence, to be able to look at the means of the violence, to look at the perpetrators, to look at the psychological backgrounds, I think this would be a wonderful opportunity for us to start understanding these individuals and to be able to create some preventative measures. Senators Perdue and Jones, their plan focuses more on compiling and distributing existing research and cites the report from the Trump administration's Federal Commission on School Safety. What that report found is that school leaders have trouble sifting through this multitude of options and technologies and even building designs to improve school safety. So, Michael, you consult with school leaders every day. What are you hearing from them? There is a great deal of confusion and there is a great deal of data, phenomenal research. We actually have a lot of good information on what can be used to prevent mass violence. And to be clear, most attempts are averted here in Bibb County. When I was chief of police, we stopped 12 eminent, absolutely eminent planned school shootings and one planned bombing, planned double suicide. Many of our clients across the United States and overseas routinely stop these events. So we've got a lot of good information. The problem is, as you mentioned, educators are bombarded with bad data, good data that's misconstrued, conflicting information on what works. And it could be helpful, but I do point out the federal government has massive resources right now. We've got five or six really good studies on causation, indicators of risk to spot for, threat assessment and management, self-harm, lots of research on technologies and so forth. But it is very confusing for our schools. They're just literally overwhelmed with information. So, you know, both of these measures done the right way could be quite effective. The details will matter because most of our homicides, 98%, are not active shooter events. And about 1% of all fatalities on school property involve mass casualty attacks. So we would like to see broader research on the things that cause the most deaths, as well as those catastrophic events that capture our attention because they're catastrophic and frightening. So there may be an outsized perception of 
the danger when the reality is that it may not be? Obviously, when we're talking about school safety, there are a lot of emotions involved and, and there are a lot of things to consider when keeping our children safe. Is there a distinction here between the perception and the reality? Absolutely. I mean, the average person thinks that active shooter events are a recent phenomenon. Our first active shooter attack in the school was 1891 at a Catholic school in Newburgh, New York. They happen globally. We've worked in 24 countries. We have never had anyone from any country bring us in that was not concerned about active shooter events. No other country that we know of actually has mandatory reporting of school homicide. The UK does not. Canada does not. India, uh, Trinidad, Tobago, Vietnam. So, you know, the perceptions are a bit distorted. There's a good difference, too, between 24-7 media, the Internet, social media. So sometimes it's awareness, better reporting. I've been in this field 39 years. I was attacked with a weapon uh, in my senior year right here uh, at Central High School here in Macon, Georgia, in 79, shot at with a semi-automatic rifle when I was 15 in this community, not at school. But uh, I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen the data. You know, our, our, you know, and it's hard to correlate when we didn't have such rigorous controls on data, but pretty clear to us that probably twice as many people were murdered on an average annual basis from 1970 to 1990 than in the last 20 years. And to be clear, I've worked 17, personally worked 17 active shooter events in U.S., Canadian, and Mexican schools, including three of the most deadly. So I'm not at all trying to minimize them. But we also have to pay attention to the successes we've had, to the near misses, which we don't track currently very well, to if we really want to be effective with this. And we cannot ignore the 99% of fatalities don't involve the ones that we see on the news. The vast majority of the homicide deaths don't look like the ones we see on TV. Chris, Chris, you were nodding when he was speaking. You know, of course, in 1891, there weren't automatic weapons and people weren't killed in such numbers. But I'm just wondering what you were thinking about when he was speaking. Well, I think he's making some wonderful points. Um, I do think we want to reiterate that schools are still the safest place for kids to be during the day and that these events are unusual and rare. And yet they bring, you know, lots of social media, create lots of, I think, fear for people who then have reactions and are fearful reactions to how do we protect our kids moving forward. That's Chris Vargas. She is director of GSU Center for Research on School Safety, School Climate and Classroom Management. Also with us, Michael Dorn, executive director for Safe Havens International, a nonprofit school security consulting organization. Curious about your thoughts on these proposals then. Uh, Michael, I'll ask you first, what do you think of Senator Isaacson's plan for CDC funding then? Well, again, one example, I, I don't like the emphasis on mass casualty shootings because that's quite dangerous. And we are, I'm currently working multiple deaths that have occurred in districts that focused intensively on that. And so a couple of examples, CDC data shows that 45% of homicides on K-12 campuses in the U.S. relate to interpersonal conflict, most, most obviously fights. Fights in high and middle school campuses are our most accurate predictor, not just in the U.S., but Kenya and, and a number of other countries around the globe, followed in the U.S. by gang activity. 25% of homicides on K-12 campuses involve gang activity. And when those two separate data sets converge, if you have a lot of fights and a lot of gang activity, you have a lot of violence. So, you know, available data, use this with caution, probably about 8% of our homicides over the last 40 years have been these mass casualty shootings, the number of victims, I should say. So we have to be very careful. We don't want to exclude the most common types of homicide and other types of violence. So it all depends on how the study is done and, and how the data is utilized. But I think it'd be excellent if it's done well. Well, let's uh, move on then to some best practices. Chris, you're a psychologist Mm -hmm. for schools that can afford them, something that you said. So is hiring more counselors is your top recommendation. Why? 
Mm -hmm. So I would say mental health professionals broadly, since I am a school psychologist. And so um, in schools, we have school psychologists, we have school social workers, and then we have school counselors. And so in my opinion, all three of those roles are very important. They serve different purposes, all there to um, address the mental health concerns of students. And so, you know, when you look at um, the frameworks and the best practices that are proposed, prevention is is, is the key. Um, and I think putting money at the prevention side of things to prevent some of these incidents was, I think, the biggest bang for your buck. So then there is the intervention side. That is the, you know, say the screening machines, all of the school design, all of the equipment that would help monitor and survey students in schools. So, Michael, on the intervention front, one tactic, training teachers and other adults on campus on how to spot warning signs. Now, you travel around the country doing such trainings. What do you want people who work at schools to know and to do? Well, I'm going to give it kind of broadly, and I'll put it this way. I've been to Israel for advanced strength through Georgia State, trained Israelis here. We've worked in other countries with really much elevated risk compared to the U.S. And there's a place and, and can be great value in the right types of physical security, lock stores, hardware, building design, those type of things, as long as we don't damage school climate, which we know from research is one of the most effective ways to reduce homicide risk. But I tell people constantly behavioral approaches are consistently the most effective, especially for planned violence. So right here in Georgia, the multidisciplinary threat assessment and management model was developed in Bibb County in the 90s. Uh, we had, back in 95, two teams full-time with a school district police officer and a school social worker uh, to carry out that and other key functions, self-harm prevention. There are an array of behavioral techniques that have been quite successful. Visual weapon screening has stopped dozens of planned school shootings, teaching people how to spot more imminent indicators. So, you know, I, I would agree, and it's especially important, though, that this be a multidisciplinary effort, you know, having the different disciplines, mental health, law enforcement, school administrators, so forth, working in, in concert, it definitely is money well spent. I tell people we'll make schools better even if you never had a eminently dangerous person. You will find kids in distress and adults in distress and bring help to the resolution even when nobody's life is at risk. And I, I totally agree with that. And what I would say in addition is it needs to be multidisciplinary as well as multi-tiered. So looking at prevention, looking at intervention, and then looking at post-intervention efforts. So, or as we um, would say, it's postvention. So when we're looking at prevention, all the things that Michael just listed, um, including increasing mental health supports and availability, um, pushing in social emotional learning and competency for the adults in the building as well as students in the building, looking at ways for students to actually access caring and supportive adults in order to share information that would be kept confidential in order to hopefully prevent and intervene in a potential situation, looking at interventions around supports for the individuals that are potential perpetrators as well as those potential victims, as well as then thinking about if an incident happens, how do we come in and support those individuals? I think uh, we really need to be looking at that multidisciplinary team, the, the things that people bring to those three areas and how we're going to proceed to be create these safe and supportive school climates. Well, that, of course, means working together. And But I want to ask about something specifically, not just about training adults, but, Michael, you advocate for a limited number of lockdown drills involving students, but only if they're done right. What is the right way to do these drills? Well, and the first thing, and, and I base this on over 8,000 one-on-one real-time simulations we've done in thousands of schools in 45 states, working over 300 catastrophic events, especially those we work deep, like the shooting in Parkland, Sandy Hook, and some of those. And, I, and I'll tell you a couple things. First of all, more lockdown drills does not mean we're going to be better at lockdown. 
Um, how they're done is important. Focusing on teaching people when to make the lockdown decision. There is a very dangerous pers- uh, approach in this country where we're focused on telling people what to do when they see a gun, hear a gun, or are told there's a gun. Working 17 of these planned attacks, they don't just show up in a hallway with an AK-47 shooting. There are behaviors one, two, three, four, five minutes before in most cases that provide opportunities to do take different protective actions like reverse evacuation, lockdown, so forth. And I caution people not to be focused on guns and shooting as a reason for locking down. The many situations that are averted are because someone was trained and empowered, that custodian, that teacher, that food service employee that sees something and is authorized and empowered to take immediate action before we are at a catastrophic point and the submarine is now at 100 feet deep and now we're closing the door. That's uh, I'm really concerned about this idea that more realistic drills, which can cause, uh, as I'm sure you're about to hear, <laughs> the trauma, um, but also lessen effectiveness. And it, it has caused casualties in some of the shootings I've worked when they've used those type of popular but not so wise approaches. Yeah, well, of course, parents want to know schools are prepared, but I've heard many parents talk about kids being freaked out by these drills. Chris, what do we know about how they affect children and youth psychologically? Yeah, what we've seen, unfortunately, is the use of um, what they would call the active shooter and or other armed assailant drills that have been put into practice in some places. So what we are seeing about those is depending on how they're actually implemented, that students are reacting by not wanting to go to school, by crying, nightmares. So we're looking at this idea of traumatizing students who haven't been through these incidents. And so when you look at the National Association of School Psychologists and the National Association of School Resource Officers, they've put forward best practices and how we would want to think about these if this is something a school is going to want to do. Best practices is really saying that we should be doing, as Michael said, these lockdown drills as opposed to, you know, having um, actors Super realistic, come in. Right. Exactly, exactly. Which, as we're seeing, um, is causing potentially more trauma than actually preventing things to happen in the future. So. All right. We are almost out of time, but I'm wondering, the state budget gives each school $30,000 to address security. Federal government, that much further, $2.5 million for the whole state. So it's about a thousand dollars per school. So if you were a school administrator, $31,000 for safety improvements, how would you spend it? Michael, go. The best way is through assessment and tying what we're doing to data and evaluation. And, and many Georgia districts are doing that right now. I've got five or six analysts in Georgia schools doing assessments just today. And in our experience, many are doing that. But the first thing is you got to determine where that money needs to be most effectively utilized, not presuming that, oh, we need more cameras or we need these better locks, whatever that may be. And you may but using an assessment process to determine what you need, especially coming in after many of these terrible events, whether they're shootings or tornado strikes, you often see excellent opportunities to have improved life safety for what we would call low-hanging fruit that were missed while we're chasing things that might, in very rare circumstances, uh, ballistic protection for glass is one example. You know, it, it can be great if you've got a ton of money, but your probability of stopping the things you're focused on with that is is relatively low compared to things like improving student supervision, communications capabilities, you know, the things that Kirsten talked about with you know mental health and the collaboration and making sure people know what's out there. And these grants can be used for a number of those types of things. And and a number of our districts right now, especially in the Atlanta area, are doing just that. They're being very thoughtful uh, for this much needed money. 
How about for you, Chris? I agree. Um, I think starting with a, a needs assessment, I was working in a school building that had locks on doors, but the locks were on the outside of the doors. So they weren't wow. very helpful. But if you just thought about, do they have locks? Yes, they do. So really looking at, I think, the structure, um, like we said, communication abilities. I think we're really looking at those those low-cost interventions that are going to be the biggest bang for your buck is the most helpful. Chris Fargis, she's director of GSU Center for Research on School Safety, School Climate, and Classroom Management. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. And Michael Dorn, Executive Director of Safe Havens International. It is a nonprofit school security consulting organization with us from Macon. Thanks so much for joining us.